welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time, July 19th, 2020. Jesus presents us with three more parables in our gospel today. Exploring the parable of the weeds and the wheat, we discover that Roman laws forbade the sowing of a weed known as darnel in another's field, indicating a very real and everyday problem that lends a vivid tone to our parable. If that's not enough, the parable of the mustard seed presents itself as equally realistic. The mustard plant could grow up to eight feet tall in one season. Finishing with the parable of the leaven, Jesus makes his point clear. The kingdom is small but mighty. Welcome back. Our gospel for uh, this week is Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. This is the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Uh, Why don't we begin as usual? And uh, just read our gospel together. Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Jesus told the crowds all these things in parables. Without a parable, he told them nothing. This was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth to speak in parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. 
So again, that was our gospel from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 43, reading from the new revised standard version. There is a shorter version. It ends at verse 30, but as always, I like to to dive into the long version. This is um, uh, a series, one in a series of parables uh, that we've been exploring in this section of the sequential reading of the gospel of Matthew. So last week, we learned, we looked at uh, the first of a set of parables. Today, we look at this threesome of parables, this threefold sequence of parables, the wheat and the weeds, the famous mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. And next week, we're going to get a handful of parables as well. And that's going to round out uh, this, this three-week look at Jesus's parables. So first of all, as we dive into the text what we want to understand, which is typically obvious to most readers, but what I want to point out nonetheless, is that when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, dot, 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 for example, at paragraph or uh, verse 24, at the very beginning of our gospel, we hear the kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. And it goes on to continue. We don't want to uh, get the vibe that Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is like that man who sowed seed. Rather, the the Greek, uh, uh, original Greek language there kind of sets up, it uses a formula, introduces the parable with a formula that kind of sets up a sort of ellipses feel to it, right? So really what Jesus is saying is the kingdom of heaven may be compared to dot, dot, dot. And then he's going to go on to tell uh, the story. So the kingdom of God is not just the man itself, but it's the whole situation that Jesus is describing here. And so the situation is is this, this man who sows wheat in his fields, but an enemy comes and sows weeds. So uh, let's look at the man uh, first of all. It's uh, some some translation just say someone. So the translation that we read uh, just says someone. The kingdom of heaven may com- be compared to someone. Some translations say the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man. But really, the Greek uh, original Greek word is a householder or the master of the house. Okay, so we're not just talking about the man, uh, the servant in charge of of sowing seed. We're talking about the guy in charge who owns, you know, the farm, if you will, he sowed good seed in the field. But while everyone was asleep, and I should make a note here as well, um, there's there's sometimes a temptation to to read into this this idea that the weeds wouldn't have been planted had uh, had the workers been awake and and ready for the enemy. I suppose we can we can look at it, that from a from a reflective sort of way, but the reality is that what's here translated while everybody was asleep is really just trying to get across the idea that at nighttime, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. Okay, so at night, an enemy came and sowed wing weeds among the wheat. And the the weeds here is something uh, particular, actually. It's really fascinating to read about. So uh, the Greek word is zazania, um, which uh, most scholars believe 
refers to uh, a type of weed that is uh, its Latin name, which becomes its English name as well, is called Darnell. You can Google this, Darnell. It's also sometimes called false wheat, fascinatingly enough. And the whole reason is because uh, this weed, Zizania, this weed, Darnell, is very, very similar to wheat, okay? Um, in fact, it's uh, very, very difficult to tell the difference between uh, real wheat and this false wheat, which are the weeds here being sown in the parable. It's very difficult to tell the difference between the two until you get pretty close to harvest, which fascinatingly enough, we can see why in this parable here, the master of the house says to allow the two to grow together because they're largely indistinguishable from one another until you get closer to the harvest. And even though they're indistinguishable from one another, and even though uh, the, the, the false wheat, the darnel, is very, very similar to the true wheat Uh, It has some scary aspects to it, right? So Darnell is poisonous, actually. And its roots uh, are are known for becoming very intertwined with the roots of those plants that they grow around. So you not only have these two plants, one wheat and one a weed, that look very nearly the same, but they they're becoming intertwined with one another under the soil. And it was so difficult to distinguish the difference between uh, true wheat and this false wheat that uh, there was actually Roman laws that forbade the sowing of Darnell in another's wheat field, okay? So uh, it appears that um, Jesus is not the first person to have thought of this idea of um, false wheat growing among true wheat. In fact, um, the enemy here who sows the false wheat is likely not the first person. Obviously, this is a fictional parable, but follow me here. He's not the first person to have thought of this before. If there's Roman rules uh, that forbade the sowing of false wheat in wheat fields, this was a little bit of a problem. It is a problem, a serious problem, okay, for them to for the Romans to make a law against it. You did you just did not do that to your neighbor. That was not cool, right? So uh all this all this makes so much sense in light of what Jesus is saying here in the parable. Uh when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. The slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these seeds come from? And I love the response here of the master, which in many ways we we feel is the response of Jesus himself, right? What does he say? An enemy has done this. An enemy has done this. And, And why do I love this in many ways? Well, because we can sometimes forget that our Lord's, uh, first beef, if you will. And and that kind of makes light of a a serious situation, but our Lord's first beat, uh, 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 beef, excuse me. I must be thinking of food. I just confused beef with beet. Uh, our Lord's first beef is with Satan. All right. Think back with me 
to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And if you've studied um, any sort of theology and you know anything about um, what Adam and Eve were like, the, the life that they had prior to the fall, you know that they were endowed with certain gifts from God. And one of these gifts was something called integrity. And what integrity means is that Adam and Eve's uh, desires were completely in line. The, the, they didn't have like desires of the flesh that were out of line with the desires of their will, for example. Um, they weren't rebellious. Is a, They were not innately or naturally rebellious as, as we often experience existentially in our day-to-day life precisely because Adam and Eve had this, this uh, preternatural gift, it's called, of integrity. Now, what the implication is, understanding that situation, is that Adam and Eve had to have temptation introduced to them. In other words, they didn't naturally experience temptation in the way that so many of us do, for example. Temptation had to be placed in front of them by Satan in order for them to fall because they were completely satisfied with their life and completely integrated in their desires. And so if we if we see here a sort of parallel, and I don't want to take Jesus's parable too far away from its, its real meaning, and our Lord explains it himself at the end of our gospel, if the weeds here are in a way sin, they were planted by Satan. And so Jesus's first beef is with the enemy who sows the weeds, right? Now, I don't want to reduce either our participation in our sinfulness, the ways in which we are complicit with the temptations of Satan. I don't want to do that. But nevertheless, it also shows us, it begins to reveal to us a little more the the tender heart of God who feels for us because he sees the tempter constantly going about while everyone is is asleep, sowing weeds. And so Jesus' intent in becoming incarnate and dying upon the cross was to bind Satan and to prevent him from wreaking the havoc that he was able to do so freely on earth after the fall, right? An enemy has done this. So they say, uh, do you want us to go and gather them? In other words, do you want us to go and gather the weeds? But the master of the house replies, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them, all right? And everything we just read about or, or talked about what Darnell is, false wheat, this makes total sense. The the weeds and the wheat have just begun to sprung up, spring up, which means they look largely identical. And their 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 roots are becoming intertwined. No, he says, let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers collect the weeds first bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. There's a 
a, bi- a biblical scholar by the name of Craig Keener. He has a wonderful commentary on the gospel of Matthew. And he says this about this section of our parable. This is a direct quote. He says, the landowner avoids uprooting the young Darnell, which still looks like wheat because he values the wheat. In the same way, God endures the wicked in the present to provide all those who will receive him time to become his followers. I love that last section. It's really profound. God endures the wicked in the present to provide all those who will receive him time to become his followers. No, so what? Uh, how we often perceive this parable is that those that are wheat are wheat and those that are weeds are weeds. But the, the fundamental reality is that at the beginning here, which is the, the setting of our parable, the weeds and the wheat are indistinguishable. And so what the master of the house is telling the servants, wait until they grow into what they are. Now we know that objectively they are what they are, but there's a sense in which the weeds and the wheat are not yet distinguished. They have not yet grown into themselves. And so the idea is, and this is what Craig Keener gets at, by being patient and allowing them to grow and to grow up together, he is giving time for the proverbial weeds to actually become wheat, right? He says, God endures the wicked in the present to provide all those who will receive him time to become his followers. God, if 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 patience is a virtue, which it is, God in his perfection is the most patient person ever to have existed. His patience knows no limits and neither does his love. And so God in his tremendous patience will endure evil if it means the repentance of the unrighteous and their turning towards him. And this is really in many ways, the theme of our readings today. It's all over all of our readings. So if we if we jump up to our first reading, which is from the wisdom of Solomon, we read, for neither is there any God beside you whose care is for all people to whom you should prove that you have not judged unjustly. For your strength is the source of righteousness and your sovereignty over all causes you to spare all. For you show your strength when people doubt the completeness of your power, and you rebuke any insolence among those who know it. Although you are sovereign in strength, you judge with mildness, and with great forbearance you govern us. For you have power to act whenever you choose. Through such works, you have taught your people that the righteous must be kind, and you have filled your children with good hope because you give repentance for sins. So God's power is complete, and he is sovereign in strength, and yet he judges with mildness and with great forbearance. He governs us. And why does he do this, says the wisdom of Solomon? At verse 19, it says, 
Through such works, you have taught your people that the righteous must be kind. Why does God do this? Because he has concern for each and every one of us individually and wants to allow us the opportunity to repent. But he also gives us this example to teach us that we must do the same. That our patience and our love must have no limits as well. And this is this is a great uh, a great source of examination. How patient am I with others? How kind am I with others? How mild in judgment am I? And how much do I forbear in my uh, judgments of others? Even the psalm touches on this idea. Psalm 86. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my cry of supplication. All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. But you, O God, are God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant, save the child of your serving girl. You, O Lord, are God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that that phrase there, translated steadfast love, it translates a Hebrew word, hesed. And this Hebrew word hesed has a very specific meaning. It almost has a technical meaning. It refers to covenant faithfulness. In other words, God will never forget the bond that he has made with us, the familial kinship covenant bond that he will he has made with us. And in refusing to forget that, he offers us tremendous patience that we might have the time to turn towards him. And for the righteous, that we might have the example of God's kindness and his patience, his steadfast love, his hesed, so that we might do the same for others. Just a real quick Old Testament reference here that biblical scholars have pointed out. Uh, The master of the house says that he's going to tell his reapers that at harvest time, they can collect the weeds first, bind them into bundles to be burned, and and then gather the wheat into the barn. Uh, It conjures an image, actually, from the book of Daniel, where we see uh, the three youths, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, who have been thrown into the fiery furnace, delivered from uh, delivered into the midst of the burning fiery furnace, but God saves them from the furnace. In fact, if you go to, it's labeled a little bit differently. Uh, actually, so if you find in your Bible the the song of the three youths, it's a section in Daniel. It, it's labeled a little bit differently because um, uh, little little tidbit here. It's actually in uh, in biblical Aramaic. Okay, it's not in Hebrew. 
Nevertheless, you'll read about these three young men uh, who, who are delivered into the burning, fiery furnace, but are saved from it by God. And when they're saved from it, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, says, he says, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And so three men, Nebuchadnezzar threw three men into the fiery furnace. They're not consumed by the fire. God delivers them from the fire. And as Nebuchadnezzar gazes into the fire, he sees not three men, but he sees four. And the fourth, he said, is like a son of the gods. And there's this idea that, uh, Jesus, the the divine Logos, I shouldn't say Jesus yet because he hadn't become incarnate yet, right? But the the second person of the Trinity, the divine Logos, is who is walking in the midst of the fire with them to save them. So if the weeds are going to be gathered and bundled and burned in the fiery furnace, God will save his wheat from that demise as he saved uh, the three young men in the book of Daniel from that demise as well. Let's continue on to the next parable, which is a famous parable, the parable of the mustard seed. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches, all right? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, again, just like with the the false wheat, the weeds, the darnel in the first parable, he's talking about something uh, something very realistic in this parable. Um, he's talking about the mustard seed. Uh, first of all, if you want to you know do some googling yourself, he's not talking about yellow mustard. He's talking about a different kind of mustard, black mustard, which was native to the North Africa kind of Middle East area, right? And black mustard seeds are indeed very small, like Jesus refers to here. So black mustard seeds are anywhere between one and two millimeters. That's that's all they are. So for, for a bit of reference here, the point of a sharpened pencil is about one millimeter. The tip of a new crayon is about two millimeters. So we're looking at a seed that is somewhere between those two sizes, somewhere between one millimeter, like the point of a sharpened pencil, and two millimeters, like a, a tip of a new crayon. Uh, just for a little bit more context, a pea, which we know is pretty small, right? A pea is a whopping 10 millimeters, okay? So a black mustard seed is very small, and yet, though it is very small, it can grow quite large. It can grow up to eight feet tall and not eight feet tall in like 20 years. It can grow up to eight feet tall in a single season, right? And just in case you were wondering, yes, black mustard was used as a condiment in ancient times. Jesus probably had black mustard on his his hot dogs when you go to the ball game, right? So, the smallest of seeds, this tiny little seed. Indeed, it grows into this big shrub. And it's fascinating too, because Jesus says it grows into the greatest of shrubs. And then he even goes on to say that it becomes a tree. Now, biblical scholars have been like, well, I wouldn't really call it a tree, but it seems like Jesus is moving from realism 
in expressing what the kingdom of God God is going to be like, but then he also moves into like, like super realism or like like supernatural descriptions because you wouldn't really say that the mustard seed becomes a tree, but nevertheless, it's as if Jesus is saying, indeed, it's like this tiny little seed that becomes this eight foot shrub, but actually it's even greater than that. It's going to grow into a tree and then the birds of the air are going to come and make nests in its branches. And if that's not enough of an image in and of itself, you're a first century Jew listening to this and you hear Jesus say the birds of the air come and make nests in their branches, you are immediately going to go straight back to the Old Testament. Again, to the book of Daniel, chapter four, verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were fair and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the air dwelt in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. This this idea of this mustard seed growing into this great shrub, becoming a tree and the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches conjures up this image from Daniel 4, verse 10 and following. But lest you go back and read Daniel 4 and go, Katie, that vision is actually of like a bad thing. Allow me to explain because as Daniel goes on, describing this vision, this great tree actually is cut down and stripped of its leaves and its fruit is scattered, right? And if we continue reading that verse 17 of chapter four of Daniel, we hear the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And this, this dream was given uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar to show him that his kingdom, though it was great and, and begin to encompass the whole world in many ways, right? Uh, the, the, in this part of Daniel, in this part of the Old Testament, the Jewish people are in exile under the Babylonians. Though the kingdom is great, it's going to be taken. As as the scripture says, the, the sentence is given that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So when Jesus uses this image in reference to the kingdom of heaven, what is he saying? He's saying that the kingdom of, of the world is going to be stripped down and taken away from the rulers of the world, but it's going to be given to him, to our Lord, that he may have dominion. And this new kingdom, which is not a kingdom of the, of the world, it's the kingdom of heaven, and indeed is the kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish, all right? So for those who are concerned about a political kingdom being established by the Messiah, the fact that Jesus is referring to this transfer of power from worldly powers 
to heavenly powers, but in a veiled sort of way is significant because Jesus doesn't come on the scene to establish a new earthly political kingdom, right? No, he he comes to establish this new kingdom, which is like a mustard seed, uh, which is like leaven. We're going to get to in a second. It's It's in the world, but not of the world. And it's what I would argue is the church. One more quick Old Testament reference for you because I can hardly ever resist. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 22 and following. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it upon a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it that it may bring forth bows and bear fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell all kinds of beasts. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, bring low the high tree and make high the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. So again, this idea that God will will take away the kingdoms of the earth, but make grow the small, uh, invisible in many ways, kingdom of heaven. And so this, this image again of this great tree in which birds will come and, and dwell in its branches. Another fascinating kind of tidbit here that it's a cedar being described here in Ezekiel. And the cedar was in many ways synonymous with the temple because the temple, Solomon's temple was built with uh, a lot of cedar. And so if, if we compare this idea of the kingdom of heaven to a great cedar and the cedar reminds us of the temple. It's this idea that, that God is building up in, in his mustard seed, you know, using the parable language, a new temple, right? And is not the kingdom of heaven a new temple? Let's move on to our final parable, which is very short. It's one, one sentence, right? He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. This is this is very simple, but yet a very powerful idea. As Craig Keener, who I quoted earlier, points out, this parable seems to be telling us that Jesus's kingdom invades the world in a hidden way way. Jesus's kingdom invades the world in a hidden way. Yeast, it's something so small. It makes up hardly any of the ingredients of bread. And yet, does it just leaven the little pieces of bread where it ends up? No, it leavens the whole the whole loaf of bread. And what's fascinating too, which is easy to gloss over, we're not talking about a small amount of bread here, right? If we're talking about a tiny mustard seed that grows into an eight-foot shrub. We're also talking about a lot of bread here leavened by a small amount of yeast because three measures of flour is 50 to 60 pounds of flour. This is a ton of flour. 
50 to 60 pounds of flour is going to provide bread for well over 100 people. All leavened with this very, very small amount of yeast that is indiscernible when you eat the bread, right? And yet it gives the bread in many ways its breadness, right? What would bread be without leaven? Just simply not the same. Bread would not be the same without leaven. And don't get me wrong, I like pita bread and stuff. But but even pita bread has its fluffiness, right? Crackers are not the same as bread. Don't give me crackers when I ask for bread, right? This is the power of this little tiny little bit of yeast. And as Craig Keener says, if if the kingdom of heaven is like this yeast, then the kingdom invades the world in a hidden way. And I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna uh, touch on Jesus's explanation for the parable of the weeds and the wheat because it's a, it's a very clear explanation. But I do want to point out how Jesus closes up this section here. What does he say? Let anyone with ears listen. Another translation, he who has ears, let him hear. Do not fail to understand what you can understand. That's what Jesus is saying. You you can understand this. Don't stop up your ears and pretend that you can't understand it. I want to end with a kind of further reflection on this idea of the kingdom of heaven being this this invading kind of yeast that that gives abundance, that expands the bread, right? And gives it some of its best characteristics. When I was reading uh, this gospel, I was reminded of a famous phrase. This famous phrase comes from the Apostolic Fathers, um, from a, uh, a letter called the Epistle to Diognetus. And what do I mean by the Apostolic Fathers? So you've maybe heard of the Fathers of the Church, and the Apostolic Fathers would be considered Fathers of the Church, but the Apostolic Fathers refer to a particular kind of Fathers of the Church. The Apostolic Fathers are those Fathers of the Church who knew the Apostles. Okay, so we're talking about some of the earliest uh, members of the church. And we have some of their writings like this epistle to Diognetus. And as I was reading through uh, this, this very one, this small one sentence parable on the kingdom of God and the leaven, I was reminded of the simple quote from the letter to Diognetus. What the soul is in the body that are Christians in the world. What the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. This is such a powerful idea because what does the soul do? The soul is the principle of animation. Without my soul, my body ceases to live. In fact, that's the definition of death, the separation of my soul from my body. And so what is what are the apostolic fathers saying here? They're saying that the Christians give life to the world. Even if they're even if they're kind of hidden in the world, they give life to the world. Let me let me read you a larger section here that goes on to describe this idea. And it's beautiful language. I just have to quote it directly. 
For Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. They neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor did they like some proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities according as the lot of each of them has determined and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Wow. This is, if you, if you thought that there was not a theology of the layperson in the early church, you were wrong. I was wrong because there is a clear theology of the lay Christian in the church right here in the earliest, earliest centuries of Christianity. This idea that they are, that, that we are, we should be in the world, but not of the world right? Citizens of heaven primarily while remaining citizens of earth. Why? Why all these things? Why have this confessedly striking method of life? Because we, friends, are the soul of the world. What the soul is in the body that are Christians in the world. I encourage you to spend this these next few days meditating on the parables that Jesus gives us and considering what they mean for our lives and asking ourselves this question, if the kingdom of heaven is indeed like these things that Jesus puts forth to us, like these examples, and I am a member as a Christian of the kingdom of heaven, is my life embodying these ideals? Do I leaven the world with my very life? Do I live that that confessedly striking method of life so that all who see me understand there's something different about me and that something different is Jesus? Thanks for listening.